everybody. It's Ellen Weatherford. And Christian Weatherford. And we're back with your favorite animal review podcast, Just the Zoo of Us, where we take your favorite animals and we review them by rating them out of 10 in the categories of effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. We're not zoological experts, but we put a lot of time and effort getting the highest of quality of sources for Mm -hmm. information. It's been like almost two months since we've recorded a regular episode together. So pardon our rust. (laughs) Between Maximum Fun and also our every other guest episodes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, we did some fun stuff for Max Fun Drive. Like we did a Q&A. We did a D&D. Any other like letters with an ampersand in the middle that we did? (laughs) (laughs) So we're recording stuff together that was a lot of fun, but we weren't doing regular episodes. But we're back. Back at it. Back to our regularly scheduled programming. And this week we have a really fun childhood video game double feature Uh uh, where we are tackling animals featured in some of our favorite childhood video games, which I'm really excited about. I have a lot to say about mine. I don't know if I would classify mine as a favorite, personally. (laughs) Well, (laughs) Iconic, yes. Iconic, sure. Formative. (laughs) Do you think that Crash Bandicoot uh, shaped who you are today? (sighs) If so, at a very fundamental and early development level. Mm, set set down some core yeah, memories. Which I can talk more about that later. Okay. <laughs> well, my animal this week, because I go first this time around, is the European hedgehog. Very good. Scientific name is Erinaceus europaeus. Hedgehogs were, they've been submitted quite a few times over the time that we've been doing this podcast, and this is our first time getting to them. And they have been requested by Sophie, Sydney Van Hull, and Ava Jones, my cousin. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I actually got to meet Ava's hedgehog, um, which was really exciting. That's awesome. Yeah, so I had a little bit of hands-on hedgehog experience, but a different species, which mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. I'm getting my information from a very charming website, uh, Hedgehog Street, which is a conservation campaign that was launched by the People's Trust for Endangered Species and the British Hedgehog Preservation Society in 2011. So those two organizations together started this like hedgehog conservation campaign uh, called Hedgehog Street. Also, I'm getting information from a website called Wildlife Online, which is an educational website about British wildlife. It is maintained and written by Mark Baldwin and has just like very thorough, like work cited and great website. So that's where I'm getting my information from on these little dudes. Mm. Uh, we don't have wild hedgehogs where we live. When you say where we live, do you mean locally or continent yes continent wise we don't have hedgehogs here at all okay or even really anything related to them they're completely foreign all right (laughs) where we live if you like me are not terribly familiar with hedgehogs the european hedgehog is uh between 24 and 35 centimeters long which is nine and a half inches to 14 inches that's just the body and that is like a foot long that's way bigger than i thought it was because the hedgehogs we're used to seeing are a different species that is much much smaller so i did not realize hedgehogs are actually way bigger than i thought they were yeah wow This one is actually the largest hedgehog species. Okay. So there's 17 different ones. This is the biggest one. That's a lot. Uh, There's a lot of hedgehogs. (laughs) This species can be found throughout most of Europe, and they live in a lot of different types of habitats. They're kind of generalists, Mm -hmm. so you can find them in a lot of different spaces. They're also invasive in New Zealand. Oh, man. Um, Yeah, I know. So they were introduced by British colonizers who brought hedgehogs over in the late 1800s. There are a lot of stories about like why they did this. And I kept seeing sources say that it was to remind them of home. No. (laughs) See, this is why I don't fly internationally, because they won't let me take an alligator from my backyard. (laughs) It's just not the same. (laughs) 
<laughs> Another explanation for this is for them to act as pest control because they're insectivores. Uh, so like I mentioned, there's 17 species of hedgehogs. But if you are an American listener, you're probably more likely to be familiar with the African pygmy hedgehog um, or the four-toed hedgehog. Oh. So those hedgehogs are the ones that you most commonly find being kept as pets. So the ones that we have seen, um, I've seen them, you know, working with pets and and my <laughs> cousin's having a pet hedgehog. Um, it is the African pygmy hedgehog that is much, much smaller. Uh, they're also white, like their their fur underneath mm-hmm. is white, whereas the European hedgehog's fur is all like this brown color. Hedgehogs as a whole belong to this taxonomic family, Aranaceidae, which they share with I'd never heard of this creature before until I saw this, but they are apparently a close relative of hedgehogs. Moon rats. Moon rats. Moon rats. They're little critters. They live in Southeast Asia. They bear a striking resemblance to opossums. Huh. Like in the face, and then they also have that kind of like light gray or white color to them. I think they look a lot like opossums. So we're talking about the North American with babies that yes. cling. Yes, okay. our opossums, okay. the moon rats, even though being not even a little bit related, hmm. they look a lot like opossums. But then some evolutionary relatives to the hedgehogs and the moon rats, their order that they're in also contains moles and shrews. Okay. So none of those things are rodents. Hedgehogs, moon rats, moles, shrews, not rodents. They're in their own order completely. Okay. So we, we've been in this order before then. Yes. With the golden golden mole. Golden mole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a cool one. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, they're, that's what their relatives are. I guess I always thought they were rodents, but no. Would make sense. Yeah. Here's a little fun fact about the name hedgehog. They were originally called urchins in English. Yes. So sea urchins were named after them Uh because they're spiky like a little hedgehog. (laughs) But then over time, the name urchin was replaced by the nickname hedgehog. And then they stopped calling hedgehogs urchins. And now sea urchins are now just called urchins. I wonder where that lines up with the word urchin being used as a pejorative. Is that the right word? Yeah, as like a derogatory (laughs) term for like a kid on the street. Right. I wonder where that lines up. It's the same sort of etymology for each. Okay. But the word urchin originally meant a hedgehog. Neat. Yeah. I like taking little (laughs) tours of etymology. Mm -hmm. To get into our ratings for the hedgehog, which if this is your first time listening to this program, we review animals by rating them out of 10. And the first category we rate is effectiveness, which are physical adaptations that let the animal do a good job of the things it is trying to do. And I'm giving the hedgehog an 8 out of 10. That's pretty good. It's good. It's not the best we've ever had, but there are some things that they got going on. So first of all, they're generalists. So like I said, like they can live in a wide variety of places. They do really well in urban areas, which is very useful for an animal that lives in an area like Europe that is like heavily populated and with like dense human populations. Mm -hmm. It helps to thrive in that sort of environment for them. So they're really flexible and they can, they live really well in people's gardens and yards and stuff like that. So you'll see them like scurrying around in people's yards. And from what I could tell, it seemed to me like they're a very welcome presence in people's gardens because they are insectivores okay so they eat bugs and all sorts of little invertebrates basically and i think that they have a reputation for being basically like natural pest control so people welcome them into their gardens and they're also cute on top of that (laughs) i guess i assume by generalist you would it would mean it would also go for like flowers and vegetables and fruits which would lead them to be seen as a pest maybe but maybe that's not the case i think when i mean when i say generalist i really mean more like habitat wise okay but it seemed to me like all of the accounts that i could find were of people that seemed generally pro hedgehog it's not like i feel like in our neck of the woods basically people tend to find any sort of garden dweller as a pest really you know we've got like opossums that fill some of a sort of a similar ecological niche Mm -hmm. um People don't like to have them around, and so they, you know, assume that they are pests. I guess I was a little surprised to find that people uh, seem to be so fond of their hedgehogs. Seemed like they're welcome little visitors. Well, that's good. So 
The most noticeable thing about hedgehogs right off the bat is their spines. Their whole backside mm-hmm. is covered in these modified hair structures. So they're made of keratin, just like human hair and nails and mm-hmm. all that sort of thing. And just like human hair, their spines fall out and grow back like throughout their life. It's like a normal thing. They right. just fall out and then it's not that big a deal. So their spines are these modified hairs, which is similar to the porcupine, which we've talked about having these sort of sharp, pointy protrusions of hair. Um, But unlike the porcupines, the hedgehog spines are much, much shorter and they're extremely stiff. Mm -hmm. They're like little needles. Like anybody who's ever like pet a hedgehog's back knows they're they're extremely stiff, right? Totally rigid. Um, And also they don't really like being pet that much. So they do kind of like tense up. Like sometimes when they're like calm and relaxed, they can lay down their spines and then they're a little more like malleable, but it's still not fun to pet. It's not exactly soft, Mm -hmm. but they're extremely sharp, very, very sharp, like little needles all over their back. So that's very helpful in protecting them as just a little guy. (laughs) Here's something funny. In medieval times, way back when... People thought that hedgehogs carried fruit around with them by rolling around and like picking fruit up on their spines and then like (laughs) just waddling around with like berries (laughs) like impaled on their backs and stuff. That's a very nice thought. It is. It's really cute. I wish it was true. It's just probably not. (laughs) Do they roll? I mean, okay. So they roll up into a ball Uh to like protect their face and their belly and stuff like that. But then they don't have any like right it's not like a forward (laughs) motion right it's just they roll up and they stay there okay they're not like propelling themselves forward and rolling at the same time okay you would probably assume that because of sonic the hedgehog who does attack by doing that i'm personally not assuming anything about sonic represents real hedgehogs (laughs) that's just me though It's really just the spines and that's it. The spines are where the similarities between Sonic and an actual hedgehog begin and end. Are you telling me they don't wear little red sneakers? (laughs) I mean, if they made them tiny (laughs) enough for their little paws, maybe they might. So the thing about their spines, and this is something that I always think about when I see some sort of animal that has a defense mechanism that involves something pointy being built onto their body. I like to think about how are they born? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> because I really worry for their mothers mm-hmm, that have to mm-hmm. birth them. So when hedgehog babies, which are called hoglets, by the way, okay, um, when baby hedgehoglets are born, their spines are there, but they're covered by like a thin layer of skin. So where you can see them underneath, but they haven't like fully poked through the skin yet. So you're seeing this like little baby hedgehog with little spines that are like just barely underneath the surface of the skin. This is making me think of ingrown hairs and it's it does un- look uncomfortable. Like, it does look like ingrown hairs. <laughs> But Ugh. just all over their entire body. Ugh. Yeah. Apparently, like, they they grow through really, really quickly. I think it's the sort of thing where that layer of skin very quickly, like, shrivels up yeah. after they're born. Um, it's basically like a sheath, right, around them that very quickly goes away. Which makes sense because you hear about this with hooved animals and them right. being born. Because they, they have, like, a protective, what do they call them, fairy fingers on their hooves? <laughs> it's gross. Yeah. <laughs> Don't look up pictures of it. It's horrible. <laughs> But so, yeah, it's a little uncomfortable to look at. Um, And my biggest concern, I don't know if they can feel the spines like emerging through their skin, but I really hope not because that would probably feel like teething, but like all over your entire body. That's true. Or maybe it's a Wolverine type thing. I hope not. Gosh, that would not be fun at all. (laughs) So hedgehogs famously roll into tight little balls so that they can use those spines to protect their vulnerable parts. But what's kind of cool about this is that when they are rolled up into a ball, their spines like point in different directions. Mm -hmm. They don't all go in one direction. Like their spines kind of go all jagged and they point in like every direction so that they're getting full coverage, right? There's no like you can't come at it from one direction and not be poked by the spines, which is a good idea. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. And here's another point that I gave them for effectiveness. Hedgehog blood plasma neutralizes the effect of venom from the European viper. Oh. Yeah. They do have that going for them where they're prepared against 
European vipers, at least. Hmm. Now, that being said, hedgehogs do have a hard counter, and that is the owl. Okay. So both hedgehogs and owls are nocturnal. All right. So they're both out and active at night, which means they're crossing paths. So when the hedgehog is like out of their burrow and walking around, that is prime owl hunting time. And owls are silent. So they're able to essentially sneak up on hedgehogs. So they're able to swoop down without being picked up. The hedgehog has horrible eyesight the hedgehog (laughs) absolutely cannot see this owl coming hedgehogs rely more on hearing than eyesight and owls are extremely good at not being heard right so owls are great at sneaking up on hedgehogs they're so fast that the hedgehog doesn't have time to curl up into a ball and the owl also has talons that are really really long and often longer than the spines Mm -hmm. so the owl's talons are usually long enough that it can pick up the hedgehog no problem and these are the big ones, too, like the big hedgehogs. But big owls also. Yeah. There's like an eagle owl that lives in this area that's like absolutely enormous, huh. like big, big guys. Okay. So they're not incredibly effective against owls, so that is a major predator for them. Hmm. I'm also – so I, I docked an effectiveness point for how horribly menaced they are by owls, but I'm also taking off one by the fact that they're very slow. Contrary to what Sonic would have you believe, they do not gotta go fast at all. Cannot go fast. They cannot go fast. They just they just waddle everywhere. I mean, this kind of makes sense for an animal whose defense mechanism is to kind of turtle, right? right. Like they just hunker down where they're at, right? Mm. Like fleeing is not really that's not really the highest priority item on their like line of defense. Fight, flight, or I don't even know, like fortress. <laughs> <laughs> So fleeing isn't super important to them, so they're just not fast at all. They really just kind of waddle around and not very agile creatures at all. So I did have to dock for that. That's unfortunate. And also the fact that, like, they don't see very well, even though they're nocturnal. Like, some nocturnal animals will make up for the low light conditions. Like, just last week we talked about owl monkeys, Mm -hmm. um, which have, like maximized the amount of eyeball (laughs) that they have available to them so they can actually see pretty well in darkness. Um, But hedgehogs have not bothered. They have just decided that not being able to see is just fine with them. Okay. So some notes for the hedgehog. But otherwise, you know, high defense. This is maybe a little bit of a tank among uh, little critters. So the next category for the hedgehog is ingenuity, which if this is your first time listening is behavioral adaptations so things the animal is doing with their body to solve problems that they encounter throughout their life i'm giving the hedgehog what i consider to be an extremely generous five out of ten okay based on what i've seen (laughs) um they're solitary creatures they really don't prefer to socialize with each other even courtship between hedgehogs is not exactly cordial it's the opposite of romantic i mean it's most likely unpleasant for both parties. <laughs> it, it really is. <laughs> um, it, so it usually involves the male hedgehog aggressively pursuing a female, uh-huh. where he will chase her, he will run in circles around her, making these really unpleasant vocalizations. It's usually like grunting and hissing and like these like chuffing sounds. So he's really like being very loud and whiny about it, basically. So this draws the attention of other males who are like, oh, he's going nuts. There must be a female over there. So they come over and they fight over the female. So they're like tumbling around and making a big fuss, making a huge ruckus. A lot of times the female just walks away while they're doing this. (laughs) Like they're doing their own thing, having a wrestle, and the female will be like, y'all have fun. And turn and walk away. I saw a lot of like threads online of people complaining about noise coming from their yards at night that was like waking them up in the middle of the night. Mm. And it was it was hedgehogs during mating season. Oh boy. Yes, apparently they're quite uh spirited. And so when they do successfully court a partner and mate, they do so in what I'm going to strategically describe as a manner resembling the way that dogs, for example, mate. Okay. Which seems to me like the entirely wrong way to go about mating with a partner whose entire backside is covered in needles. Like, find a different 
position. Go any other way. Well, any other thing would be exposing too much vulnerability. I get, but I mean, it, this doesn't seem like it's the sort of situation where they're going to be in that position for very long. So, like, weigh your options, right? Just dunking on them. I know. <laughs> Just doesn't seem optimized to me. Um, so once the hedgehoglets are born, Mama Hedgehog very well might abandon or even eat the babies after they're born if she feels like she's threatened or she really needs to. And hoglets only stay with their mom for about 10 days wow. before going off on their own. So this is a rapid turnaround time on these little guys. So what's that lifespan? Not a lot. <laughs> <laughs> she's just she's just over them. Huh. <laughs> she's just done with them. She's like, all right, that's enough. We're done here. Please be on your way. So rapid turnaround time. The only real thing that I gave them ingenuity points for was this interesting behavior that they have called self-anointing. Have you ever heard of this? Maybe. So self-anointing is this thing that many species of hedgehogs do. So people who own, like I mentioned, the African pygmy hedgehogs will sometimes see them do this behavior too. What happens, it can be very alarming if you don't know what this is at first and you just see them doing it. They foam at the mouth. So they create this like bubbly foam around their mouth and then they lick their spines and kind of like spread that foamy saliva all over their body. Huh. Yeah. Kind of like they're like grooming themselves. It's not like 100% known why they do this exactly, but there are a few possible explanations for this behavior. One of them being is it is scent marking. Mm. So they're spreading their scent all over their body to try to like leave more of their scent behind for other hedgehogs because scent is a huge way that they're able to like navigate and perceive their environment, but also they're solitary and don't like to be around each other. Mm. So the idea is that if they like leave their scent around more, it will keep other hedgehogs out of their territory. Mm. I mean, I think that might serve a negative effect if you are also leaving a trail of breadcrumbs behind you for predators like foxes, right? right? That yeah. are like extremely receptive to smell. So now you've just like left a glowing runway behind you, like hedgehog this way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Another possible explanation for this self-anointing behavior is that hedgehogs can eat some prey like frogs, toads, and newts that are like mildly poisonous. Okay. So their prey might be leaving behind this sort of like toxic residue in their mouth and then they might be trying to spread that poison onto their spines. So it might be trying to like heighten their defenses, basically, like mm -hmm. adding poison damage on top of the piercing damage that they've already got. Or make themselves taste bad, right? That's like, true. You know, maybe they are spiky, but they also want to taste bad so that if something does try to, you know, eat them anyway, then it'll also be greeted with a... Negative mouthfeel and a negative taste. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, like, as far as ingenuity goes, I saw a lot of, like, hedgehog owners complaining about their hedgehogs doing not particularly bright things, like running off of surfaces or, like, they'll, like, run off of, like, the edge of a table and mm. fall or run into walls or, like, failing to recognize their owner and, like, always react to them as a threat. I think some of these may be attributed to the hedgehog just having horrible eyesight. Mm. Like, they just cannot see, right? Like, naturally, they're going to run off of stuff and have a hard time navigating an environment like that if they I just mean, can't see. Um, they're not really good at like learning things or figuring things out. It's just head empty. Nothing going on behind those sweet little eyes. Oh. It's just pure vibes only. Uh, so that's why I give them a five out of ten for ingenuity. Uh, the final category for hedgehogs is aesthetics. Um, I'm giving the European hedgehog a seven out of ten for aesthetics. Hedgehogs by nature are pretty cute. They have a cute little snout nose, which is adorable. This particular species of hedgehog is not nearly as cute as the African pygmy hedgehog, which is teeny tiny and looks like a little fairy. It looks like Shaman, the Pokemon, which looks like a little like yeah. bush with flowers on it and stuff. Yeah. I think that I might find them cuter if I wasn't already accustomed to the cuter hedgehog. If the African pygmy hedgehog hadn't been the one that I was already used to, I may have found the European hedgehog to be cuter. So Makes sense. 
That's my hot take. Um, to wrap things up for the European hedgehog, their conservation status is overall least concern, but mm. in Britain specifically, their populations have been declining, especially since the beginning of the 2000s. They seem to be stable in urban areas because they really thrive on like abundant food source, lots of shelter opportunities. But in rural areas, their populations are still like steeply declining, which has led to, you know, these initiatives, like I mentioned earlier, like Hedgehog Street of people trying to like make their gardens more friendly to hedgehogs and make their like natural spaces more hedgehog friendly and stuff. Are they sensitive to pesticides and such? Is I would imagine so. Well, and also like pesticides would also not just the chemicals themselves being bad for the hedgehogs, but also a decline in insect populations sure. would then mean they don't have enough food to eat. So yeah, like a cascading effect would mm -hmm. definitely affect hedgehogs. Just to wrap up, final thing about hedgehogs is I do want to talk about Sonic the Hedgehog because I grew up playing just an inordinate amount of Sonic the Hedgehog, particularly Sonic Adventure 2, but also many other Sonic games that I had over my the course of my childhood. And so I wanted to look into how the real world hedgehog became Sonic the Hedgehog. Mm -hmm. Because you look at Sonic the Hedgehog, and honestly, if I knew nothing about Sonic the Hedgehog and you showed me a picture of him and said, what animal is this? I don't think I would come to Hedgehog as a conclusion. No, yeah, no. It would take me a while. <laughs> he doesn't look anything like a hedgehog. <laughs> I, I wouldn't even assume it's supposed to be based off anything in reality. Right. Like, he looks like just like a made-up, like, like a Yoshi or something yeah. like that. Like, yeah. it's just, this is nothing. <laughs> so, I was curious as to why they even chose a hedgehog in the first place. Mm. So, I found a really interesting article. This is from Polygon.com. The title is The Origins of Sonic the Hedgehog, and this was by Michael McWhorter. This article quoted Sonic's creator, Naoto Oshima, who described at the 2018 Game Designers Conference that basically Sega wanted their own like iconic mascot character to rival like Mario, basically. Right. Um, Nintendo had Mario at this time. This was in like 1990, so Pikachu was not a thing yet. Right. But they had Mario and Sega wanted their own Mario, basically. And so they drafted some ideas, one including an armadillo, a dog, and an old man with a mustache. Okay. <laughs> Which I guess apparently they ended up using as the design for Dr. Robotnik. Oh. Um, so he was originally going to be like Sonic. <laughs> um, and then they relegated him to... Uh, antagonist so they came up with a bunch of designs and apparently pulled strangers walking by in central park like they took their designs to central park and like asked strangers walking by which design they liked best huh yeah and i guess they liked the hedgehog the most okay and the reason that they included the hedgehog in like the design drafts was because they wanted this character that they were gonna like have in video games right so he needed to have some way to like attack enemies and their idea for him was that like a hedgehog he could roll up into a spiky ball like a mm -hmm. hedgehog does and then roll forward to attack enemies now where the whole like theme of speed and going fast came from must have been somewhere else because it does not originate with the hedgehog i bet that was an outcome of the technology right because the it was like a side scroller type game at first mm -hmm. so that lends itself to a, a fast-paced like right like so much of those games is yeah it's it's all focused on like speed and how quickly you like maneuver through the environment and mm -hmm. stuff so I, I guess that was more gameplay inspired than it was uh, animal inspired. Mm. So, I mean, I always think like, oh, man, wouldn't it be fun to talk about like some of the real world animal stuff you can because I love to do this with Pokemon, right? Like there's so much real world zoology incorporated into Pokemon designs and stuff. So I like I always think about, oh, I want to do that for some of the Sonic animals. Y'all, it is purely aesthetic. It is nothing. <laughs> There is no zoology in the Sonic the Hedgehog series whatsoever. There's nothing there. <laughs> I like what they did with the spines in the Sonic movie, though. The recent Sonic movie. Okay, the, the we haven't seen Sonic the Hedgehog 2, but the Sonic the Hedgehog movie was pretty cute. Yeah. I will say, the ugly Sonic design did more closely resemble an actual hedgehog. It did. 
for the worse. I'm, <laughs> I do not think that would have been a good move. It's the constant battle in games of realism versus gameplay. In this case, I'm glad they threw realism out the window because it had <laughs> no place there. That's the hedgehog. Well, thanks, honey. Thank you. Let's take a quick break to hear some promos for our friends on the Max Fun Network, and then we'll get to your animal. Hi, I'm Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. And I'm Jordan Morris, boy detective. Our comedy podcast, Jordan Jesse Go, just celebrated its 15th anniversary. It was a couple months ago, but we forgot. Uh, yeah, completely. Our, our silly show is 15 years old. That makes it old enough to get its learner's permit. And almost old enough to get the talk. Wow, I hope you got the talk before then. A lot of things have changed in 15 years. Our show's not one of them. We're never changing and you can't make us. Jordan, Jesse, go the same forever at MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm going first. It's me, Jackie Keisha. Man, she's always this bossy. Uh, <laughs> hi. I'm Lori Kilbarton. Uh, we're a bunch of stand-up comics, and uh, we've been doing comedy like 60 years total, <laughs> both of us, but we look amazing. And, uh, working out. We drop every Monday on Max Fun, and it's called The Jackie and Lori Show, and you could listen to it and learn about comedy and learn about anger management and all the things. And Jackie is married but childless, and I'm unmarried but childful. So together, we make <laughs> one complete woman. Is that just what that one's going to end? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we try to make Kyle laugh just like that and say, oh, my God, every episode. It's a good job. Jackie and Lori Show, Mondays, only on Maximum Fun. So, baby, what animal are you talking about this week? So the video game contender to Sonic that we chose is... Please don't call him a contender to Sonic. <laughs> he wishes. All I'm going to say is which brand is still making consoles. Okay, well. Anyway. <laughs> uh, usurper of Throne Crash Bandicoot. Okay. <laughs> I, I was clearly not a Crash Bandicoot kid. Yes. What system was Crash Bandicoot on? Crash Bandicoot started as a, an exclusive to the Sony PlayStation. Mm. That is the first PlayStation. So history-wise, Sony wanted their own mascot character for the brand, much to contend with Sega and Sonic, mm -hmm. as well as Mario and Nintendo, but also Warner Brothers and Taz, which is a Tasmanian devil. Okay. It has been at least 10 years since a thought crossed yes. my mind about the Tasmanian devil character. Yeah, so it's a Looney Tunes thing. Mm -hmm. So this was in the mid to late 90s that this was created. And by this that all time, coming together. <laughs> not, and people were a little iffy on the need for mascots anymore in sure. terms of the video game sphere. Mm. The idea was their player base was getting older. By then, and mm -hmm. wasn't so interested in it. Although, they still had younger generations coming up behind them. <laughs> right, right, right. So, that's where I was at. Uh, so, I was a young child during the mid and late 90s. Prime Crash Bandicoot <laughs> demographic. Yes. So, specifically, Crash Bandicoot was based off of the Eastern Bard Bandicoot. Paramelis Gunny. G-U-N-N-I-I. I was thrilled it would have, to have been less than three years ago to find out that the bandicoot is a real animal. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was something they made up for the game. <laughs> Same. Uh, so I looked into it a little bit. Uh, early designs actually had him as a wallaby. Okay. Because they, they were specifically looking for animals that not everyone on a global scale had heard of. Mission accomplished. Yeah. They were looking a lot at the island of Tasmania. Mm, sure. A couple different animals that live there. Okay. Good choice. Yeah. Good choice. So Crash's original design included a long tail with a little fluffy thing at the end. Aw. They scrapped it because of, the t of a technology limitation with the PlayStation graphics. You hate to see it. <laughs> <laughs> they couldn't render his tail. Well, it's because things that small 
would flash in and out, basically. Okay. Uh, because of your limitation of polygons and such. Sure, it's a clipping issue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, that never stopped Bethesda. <laughs> <laughs> so that that whole history is pretty interesting. So this species of bandicoot was submitted by Finn from Sweden via his mother, Mia, on our Facebook group. Thank you. As well as Cat Hughes via email. Thank you, Cat. And a couple of years ago, generally speaking, the bandicoot, not specifically the species, was requested by Bo Rauch and Dustin Barnett. Thanks, y'all. Yes. It's been in high demand. We've been working on the bandicoot. Don't worry. It's yeah. been on our radar. And I'm pulling information from Animal Diversity Web, as well as Zoos Victoria, which is found at zoo.org.au. My question for you. Yes. Was Crash Bandicoot developed by American yes, designers? It was. Was this maybe around the time of like Steve Irwin, Crocodile Dundee, like a time when I feel like American pop culture had a lot of like Australian wildlife it was themes that, in it? It was that time period, but I didn't read anything that kind of cited it directly. Okay. I'm just wondering like what would have made them think to like use an Australian animal for their IP, I guess. <laughs> they, they wanted something that was not very well known. Just to kind of compete sure. with those other ones that are okay. in similar veins at the time, at least. Sure. And they had to kind of pitch this to the Sony executives in Japan. Uh, they had to go through some iterations to get them on board with the idea. Okay. All right. I mean, they got there eventually. Yes. So, size-wise, the Eastern Bard Bandicoot from head to body is 340 millimeters, or about 13 inches. And their tail is about 100 millimeters, or 4 inches. So what these guys look like, they do kind of look like rodents, but they're not rodents. They're actually marsupials. Ah, mine is also looks like a rodent, but isn't a rodent. Right. Uh, But they have little shrew-like faces and they have long ears. They aren't rabbit long. Oh, sure. I would say very long rodent-like ears. Sure, sure, sure. And they have this relatively short tail to the rest of their body. They have clawed feet that make them good at digging. Mm -hmm. They have like a brownish fur. And this species has light banding on the hindquarters, where it gets its name. Stripes. Yeah. You see the same like pattern of having like stripes but just on the like back butt area on well not anymore but on the tasmanian tiger thylacine yes it's interesting that those two creatures would have such similar like Mm -hmm. coloration and pattern also marsupial right 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 yeah but the thylacine was like a marsupial that very heavily resembled canids yes so where you'll find these is the island of tasmania which is a state of australia um, but also in the southeast part of Australia in Victoria, another okay. state of Australia. Until very recently, you were only going to be finding them in Tasmania. And Tasmania is an island? Yes. Okay. It's an island off the south southeast of Australia. Okay. But they're also on the mainland then. I'll talk more about this in conservation. Okay. But <laughs> today, yes. Okay. Not too long ago, not so much. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> But where you do find them, they're in grasslands and grassy woodlands with dense grass and shrub cover. They belong to the taxonomic family Paramelidae, the bandicoots, because there are several other species of bandicoots. So they're related to other marsupials, and they share the same order with bilbies. (gasps) But bilbies! Yes. (laughs) So an animal I don't think we had heard of prior to that Bluey episode. Correct. I had never heard of the bilby before. (laughs) And I thought that... Once again, I thought the Bilby was just like a cute little name they made up. Right. No, it is a real animal. <laughs> but you know what? Since then, I have heard that Bilbies are an Australian Easter mascot. Really? And that because bunnies are not native to Australia, mm. they did not want to encourage people to import bunnies mm. because they didn't want to like encourage a like an invasive species. So Easter decorations and Easter like things mm-hmm. in australia will feature bilbies instead of bunnies okay interesting. Which, yeah i know i <laughs> learned all that after finding out what a bilby was on bluey <laughs> learn something new every day yes so the name bandicoot by the way comes from a type of rat in india the bandicoot mm. rat no relationship whatsoever okay <laughs> i guess someone just thought they kind of looked similar oh we love it when english speakers just name things whatever yep <laughs> <laughs> so to jump into our categories first effectiveness i'm also giving an eight out of ten for okay. effectiveness 
So first, they have a high reproduction rate. Good uh, for them. Female could produce nearly 16 young in one breeding season. Ooh. Yes. That's a lot. But it's a good thing they have that because they also have a high mortality rate. Okay. They have a lifespan of less than three years. Oh, man. Unfortunately, they are susceptible to introduce predators like cats, dogs, and foxes. Oh, okay. So those are all things that are like not native yes. to Australia. Which I did not know Australia did not natively have foxes but i guess that makes sense yeah foxes were <laughs> have definitely been introduced into a lot of places yeah. that they didn't originally belong yeah i'm guessing because of the fur trade also they can catch toxoplasmosis from cats Ugh, which is worst. often fatal for them see this is another like Reason to keep your cats inside, yes. basically. <laughs> keep your cats inside. It's not just about your cat being safe. It's right. about like the havoc that your cat can wreak on the local ecosystem. Yeah, it's bad. Not just e- even when people are like, oh, my cat doesn't catch anything. My cat doesn't hunt. My cat doesn't kill birds or kill anything here. It's like, well, cat can still spread diseases yeah. that local wildlife might not be immune to. And so it's still keep your cats inside. One message I saw from a conservationist group in this area, um, they were saying, you know, if your cat is an outside cat, at least put two bells on their collar. Mm, Sure. Because they can easily walk around without making a single bell chime. Mm. So the two bells is to help anything that they're stalking. (laughs) Maybe a whole jacket that's covered in bells. Yeah. Like at least 20 to 30 bells. (laughs) Just an LED disco ball (laughs) so yeah they they die a lot which kind of leads to the conservation thing Mm. but another positive thing is it actually does have to go fast oh (laughs) this is real yes uh so in the game crash bandicoot his whole thing is spinning and jumping yeah what's that all about is this a thing real bandicoots do spinning no jumping Uh, yes oh good okay because the real one can jump a distance of a meter Whoa. That's a long way for something that's like a foot long. Yes, for a little guy. <laughs> I mean, does he have like rabbit feet? It kind of do. They do kind of look like rabbit feet. Yes. Oh, okay. It's they starting re- to come together. They remind me of that desert mouse. The, uh, the kangaroo rat? Yes, the kangaroo rat. Yeah, they, okay. They make me think of those. This seems like Australia's rabbit. Like a reskin, basically. <laughs> sure. Like a marsupial uh-huh. version of a rabbit. And I mentioned their claws. They use those to dig for food, which include things like grubs, beetles, earthworms, roots, and even berries. Nice. Yeah. Good job. We love a fossorial creature. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And moving on to ingenuity, I'm giving a 6 out of 10. Much like the hedgehog, they're only social during mating. They're otherwise solo. They are nocturnal also. Seeing a lot of similarities yes. here. Which one of these designs came first? <laughs> the Sonic came first for sure. Okay. Hmm, uh, all right. They do make their own houses, basically. Aww. Uh, it's basically just their dens are just like a small indention in the ground, and they pull a dome of grass over the top. <gasps> like a little door. Yeah. It's like me on the first night when I'm playing Minecraft, <laughs> and like I don't have all the tools to make an actual house yet, so I just dig into the nearest hill. Yeah. And- Put a dirt patch over the front. Basically, yeah. <laughs> so it's not much, but it's home. Uh, they oh, will... that's so relatable. Oh, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> they will hiss at perceived dangers in addition to making other noises. Good. Yeah. Does Crash Bandicoot hiss? Crash Bandicoot is famously something of a, a mute character. Really? Other than yelling and screaming when doing certain things like dying and okay so like link <laughs> yeah 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 okay similar to that the lore in the video game is crash started out as a regular bandicoot and dr i believe cortex is the ba- the main baddie it's a great name did science did science to it. <laughs> it turned him into you know what we know and somewhere along the turned way him into a horrible monster <laughs> <laughs> And then, so the game turn is a you know 3D platformer uh, where you're jumping on boxes and spinning and mm. punching enemies, running from. It's a very boulders. chaotic game, as I remember it. Yeah. Uh, oh, you collect fruit. I thought they were mangoes, but they're not mangoes. They're, oh. they're a fictional fruit. I think wampa fruit or what they call fruit. <laughs> it's like a mix between an apple and a mango, and they're pur- okay. and they're purple on the inside. All right. Yeah. I guess they were like, mm, I think Bandicoot is the only thing we're going to learn about Australia. I think we're <laughs> not going to look any further into it. 
Yeah. And we're just going to make stuff up for the rest of it. Yeah. <laughs> so I mentioned it was something of a developmental thing for me because it was one of the first video games I played as a child. Mm-hmm. One of, if not the first. Okay. Yeah. And I remember having great difficulty with it. And one of my learning, a learning moment I had was my dad basically saying, oh, just keep trying. You'll get better every time. Oh. <laughs> okay, so there was some formative yes. uh, experiences being brought by Crash Bandicoot. Yes. Okay, all right. How sweet. <laughs> Moving on to aesthetics. I'm giving a 9 out of 10. I think they're very cute. They are extremely cute. Mm-hmm. That's what I have right here, actually. My note's extremely cute. Uh, is it in all caps? Because I no. said it. The way I said it was in all caps, actually. Mm-hmm. No. Can you actually edit that real quick? Nope. Can you? <laughs> So I mentioned those white bands on their hindquarters. Those are cute. They're long ears and nose. They have legs like a desert mouse. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. this, the small tail is a little odd for their overall design. You would expect a longer tail for mm. the, the otherwise body. but You mentioned that they live in areas with a lot of long grass. Yes. So I'd imagine those long stripes would help them blend in with mm-hmm. the grass too. That's a good assumption. You see that with like a lot of animals that live in grassy areas will have these like high contrasting stripes because yes. it helps them blend in. Yep. I <laughs> I think the bandicoot is one of the creatures that has been mistaken on camera traps for thylacine sightings. Every once in a while you'll hear someone pop up and say, my camera trap caught a thylacine sighting. The last one was like a patamelon, um, which is a, another little that, marsupial that lives around there. Is that like a small kangaroo? It's like it's more similar to a kangaroo. Okay. But the idea is that a lot of people believe there to still be some thylacines out there. I, I could see the appeal as it being a cryptid. There, there aren't many animals that large that have gone extinct in modern times, right? Right. And it was extremely, in the grand scheme of things, mm. this was extremely recently that it went extinct. Right. As in, like, we have video footage of thylacines. Mm-hmm. Like, they went extinct within the last hundred years, I want to say. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so with it being so recent, it's easy to hold out hope that they're still out there. Mm-hmm. So speaking of conservation topics. Yes, please. There's been a lot of very recent developments with this species. Oh, wow. So the last IUCN assessment was from 2014. So as a species, they're considered vulnerable, decreasing Mm -hmm. at that time. However, there are two subspecies. So there's the Victorian subspecies or mainland and the Tasmanian subspecies. So until very recently, the... The mainland subspecies was considered extinct in the wild. Oh, wow. Yes. Huh. The mainland one? Yes. Whereas Tasmania have been in a better position, Mm. that subspecies hasn't been accurately assessed, but they're thought to be doing good. You mentioned that a big threat to them was... Introduced predators. Right. So when you've got invasive species, I I don't think Tasmania is as affected by invasive species. They've been doing a better job of that, and they're more isolated from the mainland. So I guess it makes a lot of sense that yeah. the bandicoots would be doing way better on the mm-hmm. island than they would be on mainland. So that was until very recently. And that declaration of being extinct in the wild came in 2013. However, they were downgraded to endangered in 2021. What? Okay. What was the development there? It was the efforts done by the Zoos Victoria organization. Nice. Yes. Good so, job, folks. So they did lots of efforts to bring back that population, keeping them in reserves that are designed to keep out predators. Oh, good idea. Yeah, yeah. sure. And that's it's very interesting. I, I encourage anyone interested to go to their website and learn more about it, zoo.org.au. And it's, I think, three different zoos in the, Victor- in the state of Victoria and Australia that are part of that organization. That's very interesting, though, like that they were able to put in such effort to like, uh, you don't often see that like a a population being able to recover from being extinct in the wild. I think their reproduction rate had something to do with it. Mm. Um, So they they did. They did bounce back. There's a bit of a concern with genetic diversity because they did come back from a population of like 40 or 50 individuals. Yeah, you're going to get some bottlenecking there. And then I guess you don't they would also have to come back from the Tasmanian population right so like that's the a different subspecies like you Mm. mentioned well so when they were declared extinct in the wild they still had individuals and zoos and such Mm -hmm. so it was those populations that they used oh okay so they didn't just bring them over from tasmania they used the ones they already had yeah still separate oh that's really populations that's really interesting that's a 
a lot of times when you're trying to explain the purpose of zoos or the usefulness of zoos, like as a concept, basically, like these conservation success stories of like, that's not the only time that an animal has gone extinct Mm. and then been revived because there were captive populations of those animals. Mm. I think it's the oryx that went extinct and they were able to bring them back. Um, There have been multiple cases of this happening where like zoos were able to help a an animal basically yeah. come back from the dead. Of course, now I will say, yes, the people did bring them back from extinction, but the people also put them in the extinction yeah. place in the first place. Sure. Yeah. So it's kind of just righting a wrong, um, but good on them for putting yeah. that work in. It's not the same people righting the wrong as mm-hmm. the ones that committed the wrong. So, I mean, you know, props yeah. to them for doing that, for stepping up and doing that work. Yep. And I got to read more about Tasmania as a in terms of its natural history mm. and also uh, some cultural stuff it seems very interesting and a nice uh, ecological tourism place i'd love to go to tasmania yeah if anybody listening is from tasmania reach out <laughs> give us some tips good job babe thanks i like this creature like i said it was embarrassingly recently that i found out the the bandicoot is not mm-hmm. just something that they made up it's also somewhat worth mentioning that while Crash Bandicoot started out as a Sony exclusive, it has since branched out to other consoles. Yeah, platforms. That, that cross-platform element is a crucial one we really got to get out there. <laughs> they remade the, the original game recently, right? They did. I think it was a couple of the original games. I don't know. I haven't really kept up with it since that first game. I have a very faint memory of playing a Crash Bandicoot game on the Xbox. I didn't care for it. (laughs) (laughs) I got the vibe that I was not the intended uh, gamer (laughs) for that particular style of game. I think they had their own Mario Kart-esque type game at one point. Yeah, there was a racing game, I'm sure. I, I was definitely not a Crash Bandicoot kid. I was a Sonic kid, but you were not a Sonic kid and decisively a Crash Bandicoot kid. So Yeah, I didn't have a Sega anything. Neither did I. I had a GameCube. Oh, that's right. It was it was on the GameCube by the time. Yeah. There. Well, folks listening, let us know if you were a Sonic kid or a Crash kid. Yeah. We'd love to hear from y'all. That being said, thank y'all so much for listening and spending your time with us here today. We have had a lot of fun. Uh, you can connect with us. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just search our name. We have a really fun Discord server where people in the Discord have been, first of all, sharing absolutely wonderful things like mm-hmm. pictures of animals you see around or pictures of your pets or just chatting. Like it's, it's so fun. Everyone's so nice. But also I've been playing through Pokemon Pearl and people in Discord are helping me name my Pokemon. Pokemon, which has been really fun. Um, so if if you're interested in that, come check it out and hang out with us on Discord too. Thank you to Maximum Fun for having us on the network um, alongside your other wonderful shows. I've been listening to Ono, Ross, and Carrie a lot. I really like that show. Awesome. I listen to Ono, Ross, and Carrie like a lot. So check check that one out if you like our show too. If you have an animal that you would like to hear us talk about, email it to me. My email address is ellen at justthezooofus.com. Thank you to Louis Zong for our theme music. It's beautiful and perfect in Mm -hmm. every way. Just like you, dear listener. Thank you. Thanks, y'all. Bye. Bye. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.